Facebook's new deep text engine, creating art with machine learning, and how AI bots really work. Plus a lot more on This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Hello, everyone, and welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI, the podcast where I bring you the week's most interesting and important stories from the world of machine learning and artificial intelligence. I'm Sam Charrington, and today is Friday, June 3rd, 2016. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. We've got some really cool things to talk about today, and we'll be jumping into those in just a moment. Before we do, though, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening. This is our third show, and I've been having a real blast putting them together. Uh, And it's really great to see that people are listening, uh, that people are sending over feedback via Twitter. Uh, If you've got feedback, please send it over to me at, at Sam Charrington. Uh, and I really couldn't be happier with the response. Uh, one ask that I do have of you is if you like the show, go over to iTunes and give it a rating. Even if you don't listen via iTunes, uh, so many other services get their ratings from iTunes. It's really important for new podcasts to get ratings and reviews over there. So uh, there'll be a link to the iTunes page in the show notes. Please go over there and give it a rating. Let's jump into our first segment. We've talked quite a bit in the first couple of shows about deep learning. As a refresher, deep learning is the use of a type of multi-layered machine learning model based on what's called a neural network, uh, where the various layers kind of automatically determine how best to use the input data to make predictions through a process called training. Uh, Deep learning has primarily been focused on computer vision applications to date. That's really where the technique was developed. Uh, Problems like identifying cats in a repository of images are an example of classical deep learning problems. But researchers are just starting to apply deep learning to other types of problems. One of those is the problem of natural language processing, uh, understanding language as it's used, as it's typically used by humans. And this week, Facebook announced a new text understanding engine that they call Deep Text. Deep Text is unfortunately an internal system to Facebook. There's no indication that it's something that they're open sourcing, but given that it stems from research efforts, we might see it result in some academic papers. By applying deep learning to the problem of natural language processing, Facebook is able to overcome a number of challenges that they faced with traditional NLP techniques. Namely, they found that their deep learning approach, deep text, is easier for them to scale. Uh, it's less dependent on the specifics of individual languages, and it's more efficient in the way that it uses the data that they have available to them. Facebook has achieved some pretty interesting results so far with deep text. 
According to their blog post, the deep text engine can understand text content with what they call near human accuracy. And it can do so at a rate of several thousand posts per second across over 20 languages. Uh, so those are very interesting results, and I'd love to learn more about them. Hopefully, they'll publish some more details there. The deep text system is, in fact, built on top of another internal Facebook tool called FB Learner Flow. FB Learner Flow can be thought of as like a platform as a service for AI at Facebook, and they wrote that up in a blog post earlier this month. The deep text team is currently focused on applications in the area of conversation understanding and intent detection. They gave a couple of examples in the blog posts, one of which was identifying when a participant in a conversation needs a ride. Presumably, this would be an exchange, a conversation with a bot, and the bot could then uh, offer to get them a ride from Uber, for example. Another example was identifying when someone uh, in a Facebook post wants to sell something, which they can then use to direct them to an area of the site that is specific to selling things. So a really cool project over at Facebook. I'll be including links to their blog post as well as some additional resources like some of the underlying research papers in the show notes, which you'll be able to find at cloudpulse slash twimmel slash three. That's C-L-O-U-D-P-U-L dot S-E slash T-W-I-M-L slash the number three. Our next story is at the intersection of machine learning and art. I've been curious about electronics and computers in the arts for some time now, really going back to my days as an undergrad. Uh, my school, RPI, had an integrated electronic arts program, and we were regularly treated to some pretty funky installations in the campus library. Fast forward a bunch of years, and artists have tremendous opportunities to take advantage of technologies like IoT to create connected art, and increasingly, machine learning to uh, have the computer assist in the generation and creation of the art itself. This week, Google unveiled a really interesting project in this domain called Google Magenta. Magenta is an effort to advance the state of the art in machine learning for music and art generation, as well as build a community of artists, musicians, and scientists that share that goal. The project is based on TensorFlow, that's Google's machine learning toolkit, and it's brought to us by the team behind TensorFlow, the Google Brain team at Google Research. What I find interesting about Magenta is really how bold their research goals are for the project. They articulate these as four different goals, generation, attention and surprise, storytelling, and evaluation. And the basic idea is that we've gotten very good at using machines to understand and analyze and even to help us mix up. Uh, so take uh, art from, you know, take one piece of art and mix it with another piece of art or uh, a some directives from an artist to produce something new. But they're really looking to push it further and generate wholly new art. And then beyond that, have that art be able to 
uh, emulate the qualities that we like in human art. So the ability to grab our attention, to surprise us, to do innovative things. Uh, and further, to have multiple pieces of art uh, over the lifetime of a given project or model in the machine learning sense really tell a coherent story and evolve and really capture what you might see looking at the uh, a given artist's catalog over time. Uh, and then they seek to take on the notion of evaluating art really from the, the, the in the same way that a human would evaluate the art. How do we capture whether art is good? And how do we use that to direct the computers in creating even better art? The initial focus for the Magenta team is on audio and video art. And the models and tools that they're creating and that will be created uh, as a result of their collaborations with the community will all be hosted up on GitHub and be open source. Now, this isn't the first time that machine learning or even deep learning has been applied to art. In fact, you probably saw back in September of last year uh, the results of a really interesting project by some German researchers that they wrote up in a paper called A Neural Algorithm of Artistic Style. Basically, what they did was they trained a neural network to uh, internalize the style of a given piece of art and then apply that to another piece of art. So, for example, the classic example that went around at the time was they trained the algorithm on Van Gogh's Starry Night and then they could take a photograph and run it through the algorithm and produce a Starry Nighted version of that photograph. The approach taken by this paper was then later implemented by a master's student at the University of Tokyo using the Google TensorFlow framework. Now, there's a lot more interesting work happening in this area, and I'll be including some bonus links in the show notes. Okay, a quick aside before we jump into the next segment. Since I just mentioned TensorFlow, I should probably let you know that the Google Brain team just released a new TensorFlow paper. This paper is called TensorFlow, a System for Large-Scale Machine Learning. Whereas the original paper focused on describing the TensorFlow API, this paper describes the TensorFlow dataflow model, and it contrasts it to existing systems. It also demonstrates the performance of TensorFlow for a number of real-world applications. Definitely worth taking a look at, and I'll drop a link in the show notes. This week brought us some really interesting developments on the business side of machine learning and AI. Microsoft launched a new iteration of Microsoft Ventures. Now, they had a previous organization called Microsoft Ventures that was run by their developer evangelism team. But that's been named Microsoft or renamed Microsoft Accelerator to better reflect what that team is doing. This new group is set up specifically to make investments in companies that are doing work in targeted areas like machine learning, 
virtual reality, cloud computing, and security. Similar to other corporate venture arms, they haven't announced a specific fund size or a target number of investments. Rather, they are looking to uh, invest strategically and give Microsoft an early look at startups in those targeted areas. Now, Microsoft is going to be playing catch-up to companies like Google and Intel with long-established corporate venture groups. And in fact, Intel has been particularly busy. Just last week, they announced the acquisition of a computer vision company called Itsys. In a blog post, Doug Davis, who's the SVP and GM over Intel's Internet of Things group, says that Itsys will become a key ingredient for Intel's Internet of Things group roadmap and will help Intel's customers create innovative deep learning-based computer vision applications like autonomous driving, digital security, and surveillance, and industrial inspection. This week, Intel Capital also led a $10 million Series B financing for a company called Lumiata. Lumiata builds themselves as an AI-powered predictive analytics company focused on the healthcare vertical. The company's working on, quote, medical artificial intelligence that dramatically improves risk and care management for payers, physicians, and population health organizations. This last funding announcement is unrelated to Intel, but a AI and NLP startup called Findo announced that they raised $3 million to build out a personal search assistant. Now, we've all been hearing lots about bots, and that's going to be the subject of our next segment. We've seen a real proliferation of bot creation platforms of late. All of the major internet companies have launched major bot initiatives. Facebook at their F8 developer conference, Microsoft at their Build developer conference, Google at I.O. But that hasn't stopped startups from jumping into the Malay as well. This week brought us two announcements, one from a company called Motion AI and the other from a company called Kiwi, both offering bot creation platforms. The Motion AI platform is really targeting lowering the, uh, the barrier to creating a bot, making them easier to use. While the SQL bot platform, that's the one created by Kiwi, aims to help people build bots that have their own personas or that take on the personalities of the bot creators. Now, new bot platforms notwithstanding, the real thing that I wanted to talk about in this segment is a very, very interesting post by Claire Corthell called Hybrid Intelligence, How Artificial Assistants Work. The post is based on a talk that Claire gave at the Humans Plus Machines conference in Manila back in February. Claire essentially argues that in real-world applications, machine learning systems will never achieve the level of accuracy required to totally take humans out of the loop. For contemporary real-world applications, machine learning systems are only achieving about 70 to 80 percent accuracy. Put in context, this means that if you build a system using machine learning, for example, a customer service bot, it's going to give the customer the wrong information about one in four times on average. 
This creates what she calls a wall of accuracy that limits the utility of systems based exclusively on ML or AI and suggests that the use of hybrid intelligence, that is combining ML and AI with human workers, uh, will be the way these types of artificial assistants are created for the foreseeable future. The post identifies a couple of really interesting design patterns for creating artificial assistance. The first is called active learning, and this is when the computer works on all the tasks, but when it's less confident in its results or predictions, it calls in a human to either complete the task or validate the result. The active in the term active learning denotes that the human prediction is sent back to the algorithm to help it improve. The benefit of active learning is on productivity, and in practice, active learning is able to help companies that employ it scale their systems by 10 to 20% more than just just using humans alone. The next design pattern is called hybrid interaction, and this is where the computer suggests a response, but the human ultimately decides to send or recompose that response. In other words, the human always makes the final decision. The result here is improved accuracy, but at the cost of lower throughput and greater human effort. In the real world, what Claire is seeing is that artificial assistant companies are routing on the order of 25% of their work through the computer. So all of the AI companies are essentially human AI companies. And long-term, the industry goal is to get to a 10-90 split. In other words, 10% of the work handled by humans and the 90% of it handled by computers. There's a lot more detail in Claire's paper, and I encourage you to take a look at it. For our last segment, I'd like to introduce you to a couple of interesting articles that describe how economics principles can be applied to machine learning in interesting ways. The first of these is an article by Patrick Hall that appeared in O'Reilly Radar. It's called The Preoccupation with Test Error in Applied Machine Learning. As the title suggests, Patrick argues that data scientists are overly preoccupied with minimizing test error as they train their machine learning models. Patrick identifies a number of the challenges that data scientists face when they seek to build models by minimizing test error. Rather, He suggests that the technology exists that would allow data scientists to focus on maximizing a more concrete monetary contribution of their models instead. As an example for a recommendation system, why not evaluate the models based on the revenue or profitability that the recommenders can produce? He acknowledges that in many cases, this is easier said than done, but provides some references for people that want to take this further. The next article that I wanted to discuss is by Joshua Bloom of Wise Technology, and it appears on that company's blog, and it's called Towards Cost-Optimized Artificial Intelligence. Whereas the previous article I discussed 
attempts to apply economics to the productivity of our models, Joshua's post looks at applying economics to the cost of our models. He identifies a number of factors that we should be optimizing models for, uh, including algorithmic factors, the software and hardware costs, the project costs and organizational requirements, uh, consumer and societal impacts, and ultimately suggests that what really needs to happen in commercial situations is looking hard at the trade-off between accuracy and the cost of a model as expressed by these factors and assessing whether those costs are justified. Both of these posts aim to get you to think a little bit differently about how we optimize our AI and machine learning models, and I think you'll enjoy them. It looks like we'll have time to cover all of the articles that I wanted to bring to your attention today. The next one is really targeted at the more technical folks among us. This one includes math, and it's on an exciting topic in machine learning called reinforcement learning. If you're not familiar with reinforcement learning, it's a type of machine learning in which the models are trained based on feedback you give them as opposed to explicit labels that you give them beforehand. This article is called Deep Reinforcement Learning, Pong from Pixels, and it's on Andre Karpathy's blog. And Andre is a PhD student studying deep learning at Stanford. The article is basically a walkthrough of everything he's learned about reinforcement learning uh, over the past year or so. And it's all discussed in the context of training a RL, reinforcement learning model, to play the old Atari game Pong. He walks through a bunch of the math and includes uh, a bunch of Python code that can be that he used to train the models. If you're interested in learning about this type of machine learning, particularly if you're interested in going deep, definitely check out this article. Next up, if you're in the financial services industry, particularly trading, you'll really appreciate this next article. It's a survey of deep learning techniques as applied to trading. And what Greg Harris does on his blog is he walks through uh, all of the research he's come across on applying neural networks and deep learning to trading. Really interesting overview. If you're interested, take a look. And we made it to the final post that I wanted to bring to your attention. This one is from Microsoft and it's called Building an IoT Magic Mirror with Hosted Web Apps and Windows 10. Basically, you may have seen this project. It's building a what they call a magic mirror. It's basically a one-way mirror with a monitor behind it that can display uh, different information like the weather when you go to the bathroom, things like that. What Microsoft's version of the project has done that's really cool is integrated it with their Cortana cognitive services so that it can, for example, use facial recognition to determine who's actually at the mirror. A really cool project. All of the details are on their GitHub. Uh, my daughter's actually interested in building this one, so I may be having updates as that project progresses. That's it for our show today. I really, really hope you enjoyed the show. A few reminders. 
You can always reach me on Twitter at, at Sam Charrington. That's S-A-M-C-H-A-R-R-I-N-G-T-O-N, all one word. You can find all of the links that I mentioned and more on the show notes for this episode, and that's HTTP colon slash slash cloudpul.se slash T-W-I-M-L slash three. That'll bring you right to the show notes for this episode. From there, you'll be able to subscribe to the show in iTunes or on SoundCloud. And please, please, please do hop over to iTunes, even if it's not your preferred podcast catcher, and rate or review the show. It'd be so helpful. Thanks so much and have a great weekend.